morning. Give me a second to set this up here. This morning we're finishing up our series on the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, if you pull out your message notes, you'll see that the title of this morning's message is Perspective. So keep that word in mind. And the first note is, the first point there is titled The Idea. So here's the idea. God redeems Israel, bringing them out of the land of Egypt, giving them the promised land, the land of milk and honey, with the intention that they would use their geopolitical location to bless the world. And if you see this map behind me, you see that they are located at a crossroads in between the major powers at this time in history, Egypt in the south and Babylon in the north. And they are smack dab in the middle. And then we'll see later in history, Greece will pass through on their way out east. And Rome, even further off to the west there, will pass through Israel on their way to being involved in the world in one facet or another. God places his people intentionally at the crossroads in the ancient world. And he set up certain systems in place in their society with the intent that this would be a just society, a society where the rich would not get too rich, nor the poor too poor. And this was all with the intention that God's people would properly represent him to the world. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, you know this does not exactly happen. This, this system, this ideal, this idea did not happen in the way God intended. And so what he did was he used circumstances to hew his people into who they were supposed to be. And there's this cycle that begins right away where they are living crooked, if you will. They're living in a way that doesn't properly represent God to the world. And God uses historical circumstances to bring his people into right relationship with him. And then they, they do that. They follow that cycle. And, and after a while, after living in right relationship with God and properly representing him to the world, the cycle begins again and they start walking away and, and he kind of taps them back and says, here's how I'd like you to live. But this cycle continues for only so long and in 586 BCE, Israel has violated their relationship with God long enough. They have squandered the blessing of the land and their position in the world misrepresenting God for long enough, and something has to change, and something does happen. Those of you who are familiar with this period in history know that the Babylonian Empire invades Jerusalem at this time, completely destroying the land, destroying the temple, and carrying many of the Israelites off into exile. Now, now picture that. You're in, exod- you're in, the, in, in Egypt, under bondage as God's people. He delivers you from that bondage. You're you're your own people. You're living in autonomy. You're free in your own land for a thousand some odd years. And now for the first time in your history, you're in a land unfamiliar to you. Those stories of old about your ancestors living under some oppressive regime, they're now your reality. A question of your identity comes straight to the forefront of your mind. Who are we now without a land? Without God directly ruling us like he did when we were in Israel. This shatters the world of the ancient Israelites. 
So from 586 to about 168 BCE, God's people live under the Medo-Persian, well, the Babylonian, then the Medo-Persian rule, and then the Greek rule after that, and Alexander's empire split amongst his four generals in 323, and, and the two we're most concerned about, if you go to that map again, uh, Ptolemaic empire down there in Egypt and the Seleucid empire there in Syria are fighting over Israel, that land in between. And aside from a brief stint from about 168 BCE to 63 BCE, where the Israelites actually gained control of their land through what some of you are familiar with as the Maccabean or Hasmonean revolt, Israel once again is troubled with this question of what do we do living under someone else's rule, under foreign powers in God's holy promised land. So in 63 BCE, the Romans move in, and the big question that people are asking in 63 BCE and all the way up to the time of Christ is what do we do with the Romans? What do we do with this foreign power that is now ruling our land, that is taxing us, that is oppressing our poor? What do we do with the Romans? And each individual group of Israelite communities had an answer to this question, and I want to focus on four of those communities this morning. The first of which is the Essene community. And the Essene community was a community that decided their answer to the question of what to do with the Romans was we will move from the metropolitan urban areas out to the desert. And the Essenes, many scholars believe, become that community that lived in the Dead Sea, that lived near the Dead Sea and were known as the Qumran community. And their answer to this question of what to do with the Romans is we need to get them out. We need to get God's land back to the people of God. And they do this, their answer to this question is we will be a faithful remnant. And what that means is we will be so holy and so pure that God will be forced to act on our behalf and come deliver us from the hand of the Romans. That's the Essenes' answer to that question. Another group is the group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are essentially the priesthood. They're based in Jerusalem. And their answer to the question of what we do to the, with the Romans is not a whole lot. Um, and, and some of you may know why. They, are, they have done something very unique. They have lined themselves up with the Roman ruling powers and with the puppet king that is ruling over Jerusalem. And they are sitting pretty. Life is, is decent for the Sadducees. So although they're still concerned about how do we be Israelites, how do we be faithful people of God in this historical situation, the reality of their, of their circumstances is they're living so well, they're not necessarily concerned about getting the Romans out. And the third group we'll talk about is a group called the Zealots. And the Zealots are um, a group of extremists whose answer to the question of what we do to the Romans is we are going to take up arms. We're going to take up arms and fight the most powerful empire in the, in the world's history at this point, and we're going to kick them out. And, and you chuckle, but in 66, BC, uh, 66 CE, they actually succeeded at kicking the Romans out of Jerusalem, and they held Jerusalem for four years against the Romans until Vespasian decided he'd had enough. He sent a, a huge amount of troops to Jerusalem, destroyed Jerusalem, killing all of these um, all of all of these zealots, and really, if you've heard another story about a place called Masada, chased them so far into the desert just to wipe out every sense of this revolt. 
And why do they do that? Why do the Romans do that, just as a side note? They do it to maintain what's called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The Romans had done something extremely well. They'd, they'd, in conquering other, other peoples, they had quelched rebellion so well that, that the intent was you would produce a society where people were just kind of like this. There's no ups and downs in society. We're just level. And you, they want to get you used to what's going on in your world and just satisfied, just kind of sated. So those are, the, those are the three groups. And the group we're probably most concerned about this morning is, is the fourth, and it's the Pharisees. And again, these four groups, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Pharisees, are not groups we see in the Old Testament. If, if you open your Bible, you know, you go from Malachi to Matthew, you start reading about these groups that Jesus is interacting with, where'd they come from is the question. They came from this historical circumstance where you have a foreign ruling power in Israel, and they come answering this question. And, and people who felt we should take up arms went with the zealots. People who felt we should move out of the urban areas, they went with the Essenes, and so on and so on. Well, the Pharisees had an interesting twist on this, on this question. They, like the Sadducees, said, we're satisfied. We, 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 we just cannot see God delivering us right now from the hand of the Romans. So we're going to be malleable. We're going to figure out a way to make this work. And what they do, instead of focusing on the temple like the Sadducees and the priesthood, is they focus on the Old Testament law. And they do this to such an extent that they, and in trying to answer their, their sense of identity and who they are in the world now that they don't have a land of their own, quote unquote, is they focus so much on the letter of the law with the intent that that's how they can please God. They can reach a level of holiness, of purity, that that will please God. Maybe, just maybe, someday in the future, things will happen. A, a point on that is by focusing on the law, the written word, in 70 CE when the temple is destroyed, who's out of a job? The Sadducees. They don't have a job, and the, and the Pharisees would then morph and become what you know as the rabbis. They focused on the law. So they could connect with God, if you will, by focusing on the law and were no longer tied to this temple structure. So the second point I have is how to read. And I want to talk to you about two different ways to read the Old Testament. There are essentially two codes. And if you want to turn right now in your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 5, just to give you a little setting, that's where we're going to be for the majority of the morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. There are two codes in the Old Testament at this time, two ways to read uh, the Old Testament and apply it to the life of uh, the Israelites living in Israel at this time. Uh, one is the purity code. And the other is the debt code. And the difference between these two is this purity code was based in creation and uh, also based in this concept that God is holy, therefore we should be holy. And so the Pharisees, for instance, would go to the Old Testament and they would look up every passage that had to do with those two themes, that theme of purity, that theme of holiness, that theme of separating things that do not belong together. And we see that in creation. God separates light from darkness because the two are incompatible. And that is how you, uh, that is how you focus on purity. 
Uh, William Herzog, in a book called Jesus, Justice, and the Reign of God, which I'd highly recommend, does a very good job of explaining these two and, and giving us some context on this situation and these, and, these, and these concepts. He says that the community follows the demands of purity in order to avoid the threat of pollution or contagion. And to know that one has avoided contagion requires drawing clear lines of demarcation or boundaries. And this is very important. Pollution means confusion and disillusion of the elements involved. It is a curse. It brings death. To countenance impurity is to accept a disillusion of creation into chaos. This is the curse that the purity codes are constructed to avoid. And now what that means is you're a Pharisee in the first century. Is your world clean and orderly? For some of you. But the majority of the people around you, the majority of your community is experiencing disruption because of the Roman presence in your land. So what is their answer? Their answer is if we're experiencing chaos, if we're experiencing disruption, when we read the Old Testament, we see that there are things that are incompatible. There's uncleanness in the land. And so they focus on purity. Now, the other code is known as the debt code. The debt go codes begin with the Exodus. And there's, there's a marked difference between the debt code and the purity code. The debt code, is it finds its basis in the Exodus and with the giving of the land. And Herzog puts it like this. Yahweh gave the land to be a blessing, and the land belongs to Yahweh alone. Leviticus 25.23 states the principle well. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me, you are but aliens and tenants. The debt codes are built on the principle of extension, extending the blessing by sharing the yield of the land. This is why the people tithe every year, or every third year, rather to the Levites, the aliens, the orphans, and the widows, so that they may eat and be filled. Deuteronomy 26, 12. The same principle underlies the sabbatical year, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18, and the jubilee year provisions when debts are canceled, slaves freed, and the land redistributed to the original families. The purpose of the debt codes was to avoid the violence that arises when a ruling class exploits a peasant base. We're about ready to move into Jesus and what Jesus has to say about these, the situation, the world he's in, his answer to this question of what to do with the Romans, what to do with poverty, what to do with disruption. But before we get there, for instance, just to highlight this concept of purity versus debt, the ways we focus on the law, Herzog notes that for example, take the matter of poverty. Interpreted from the point of view of the purity codes, poverty is the result of uncleanness. If one were to respect the quest for purity, one would experience blessing and life. This is why the temple authorities, whose legitimation rested squarely on the purity codes, devoted their efforts, this is very important, to blaming the victims of their exploitation by portraying them as unclean sinners. You can keep the cycle going if you blame those who you're oppressing, telling them they need to continue to rely on you, giving you tithes, giving you tribute, and really can never get out of their cycle because they're unclean, maybe permanently unclean, as we'll see with some of the people Jesus is, is speaking to. 
The dirt poor peasants were that way for a reason. But from the point of view of the debt codes, poverty is the result of covetous greed, which violates the will of Yahweh and compromises the justice of the reign of God. In the parable of the rich fool, Luke 12, 16 through 20, Jesus portray, portrays the attitude that sabotaged the debt codes. Having received abundantly from the land, the rich fool does not ask how he can participate in the principle of extension by giving what he does not need but hoards his abundance for his own use. He embodies the very covetous greed that destroys the Torah's view that the land is Yahweh's alone. If you're familiar with that story, that's about a man who has a surplus of grain from his fields. And what does he do with it? He says, I've got all this surplus. I've got all this extra grain. Am I going to give it away? Am I going to give it to the starving people that I pass every day? No, what does he do? He builds barns to store up his surplus for himself. This cannot exist in this society. This society, ancient Israel, is not like our modern-day society. It is, it is what's known as a delicate economy. Amos, in the, in the book of Amos and the prophets, he talks about the summer and winter houses of the rich. And we're like, no big deal, two houses, whatever. A lot of us have two houses. In the ancient world, if you had two houses, someone did not have a house. That's how delicate this society was. Your actions impacted people. So what's Jesus have to say about this? We're in Matthew chapter 5, but to give us a little context on the situation before we get into one of his more famous discourses, the Sermon on the Mount, check out verse 23 of chapter 4. What is Jesus up to? Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogue. I'm actually going to try and turn on this light. There we go. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among people. His message, the euangelion, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, is bolstered notice by action. He not only proclaims the good news of the kingdom, but he cures every disease and every sickness among the people. Verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus, verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, What is Jesus' message? It's the good news of the kingdom. Who is his audience? It's the poor. It's the diseased, the sick, the epileptics, the demoniacs. Those who in Israelite society, when viewed from the code of purity, are not whole. You've probably heard about lepers in this day would have to ring a bell, and they were outcast. They were outcast because in Israel, wholeness is important. Wholeness with a W is really close to wholeness, holiness with an H. It's this concept that you must be a whole, complete person to exist within the society of the people of God. That's, it's a dangerous way of looking at things if you only focus on that. Jesus is speaking to a group of outcasts. Remember, he's in the north. He's in Galilee. He's far away from the religious urban center of the temple. So this is his audience. What does he have to say to this group of people? 
And, and furthermore, why, does he come, why do these people come to Jesus? I mean, there, there's a system in place for some of these people. There's a system where they can get help. It's called the religious institution. But as you could probably tell already, the religious institution is inept. It's corrupt. At this point, it is not doing its job. In fact, Jesus gets angry really at one point in his ministry, and he takes, uh, you know, he pulls together this cord, a bunch of fabric to make a whip, and he starts turning over tables from money changers. You remember when he really, really starts throwing stuff around outside of the temple? Because the very people who were supposed to usher in and welcome the needy and the marginalized are oppressing them in their marginalization for more gain themselves. I hope you can feel it almost in your stomach. This is a rotten situation. And this is, the, this, is the, this is the circumstance God comes to the world. Remember, God had that idea. My people are going to bless the world by living justly, by living in a society where people who are poor are actually helped by those who are more fortunate. And God comes to earth, and this is what he sees. He sees the very institution he set up to bless those who are outcasts, using that system to oppress them. So what does Jesus say to him? To these people. He says in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the poor in, in spirit, another way to think about that, or another way to read that would be those who feel things are not the way they should be. Blessed are those who are poor, downcast in your spirit. You are longing for more. What are you going to get? Remember I told you the Sadducees are pretty satisfied with the situation? They had a monopoly on that kingdom of heaven concept. We know how to get around. We know how to work God's kingdom and his reign. God is saying to a group of outcasts, no, they don't have the monopoly on it. You are blessed, and one day you will have the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, those who feel a deep sense of loss. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is a tricky one. The first three, if you'll notice here, the first three versus the last five of these Beatitudes, um, I would say that these are conditions of life. And what I mean by that is these are not attributes to strive for necessarily. These are just the reality of their lives. And so meek, this, this actually has a parallel, or Jesus is referencing a passage in the Psalms. So if you can flip over real quickly to Psalm 37, verse 10, I'll give you a little context on where Jesus is going here. Psalm 37, verse 10 says, Yet in a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you diligently look for them, they will not be there. But the meek, verse 11, shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Now put yourself in the shoes of these people to whom Jesus is speaking. Everywhere you turn, there is someone there to take from you your hard-earned money, food blessing. There are wicked people in your mind. And what is the psalm saying? It's fascinating, isn't it? The psalm is saying there will be a point when you will, you will actually go looking for them and not be able to find them. And at that time, the land will be yours, the land that is supposed to produce blessing for you, which it is producing in the first century. There's not a problem with the land. The land is producing blessing. The poor should not be poor. There is enough, like we see in that, that parable, that man who's building his barns. There's enough surplus 
of stuff to feed every, every hungry mouth. It's a problem with the distribution of the goods that the land produces. Those who, because of their circumstances, could not experience the blessing of the land would one day inherit the earth. That would tingle your ears, that this would be a guy worth listening to. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You can see the physicality of that, hungering and thirsting. And he's speaking to a group of people who actually physically as well as spiritually are hungry. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. And the last one I want to comment on is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You want to connect with God? Jesus is saying, be pure in heart, be pure in mind. This finds its parallel, this, I, this concept of, of um, ritual purity, by being pure in mind or heart, finds its parallel in the actual ritual purity associated with the temple. The temple in the ancient world is where you went to become pure. You would make your sacrifice, and the priest would, would, uh, would basically say, you are clean, you are pure, you have access once again to God. The violations you've made in your life have been paid for by your sacrifice. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying it's not about the temple. It's not about the religious institution. You can have access to God apart from that. And he's really paving the way for what he's going to do on the cross, where he would provide through his once and for all sacrifice access to God. The rabbis would actually later pick up on this concept after the temple's destroyed because now we can't really focus on the temple. We can't use that as our institution to gain access to God. And so you see in the rabbinic writings from around 100 CE to about 600, uh, this concept of mental purity, gaining access to God apart from the sacrificial system. So what's going on here? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful. And what does this have to do with the book of Ecclesiastes? The book of Ecclesiastes, as we saw, presents a radical critique to a formula that had been set up with the book of Deuteronomy. So you don't really have to turn there, but what what I need you to understand is that at this time in in Jesus' day, the formula is back, if it had ever even gone away. That formula, remember, that had started with Deuteronomy 28, talking about six blessings and six curses. And essentially, it set up a formula that said, if you do A, God will come alongside you doing B, and you'll be happy. Life will be well. But to ensure that you're in right relationship with me, if you decide to do C, I will be forced as God bringing you back into right relationship with me, trying to give you the blessing. I'll be forced to do D, and life will not be so well for you for a while. And that's that formula. And in its essence, it's a good thing. But of course, it was taken too far. We saw in the, in the first time I spoke on, and we introed this whole series on Ecclesiastes, we saw that the book of Proverbs applied this formula. It's a good thing. 90% of the time, doing right things will, will benefit you. But then we saw with the book of Job, what? saw a man who's experiencing unjustly, in a way, the frown, the curse. And all his friends say, what'd you do? It's like, I didn't do anything. You can't use the formula like that. 
And then we see that further with the book of Ecclesiastes where he's saying, this formula has got to go. And he gives examples of why life is messy and life is not so cut and dry, black and white. And, and we got tons of contributions from the book of Ecclesiastes on that, that train of thought. But by Jesus' day, you have a formula that is very well rooted in place, that formula of purity, of the religious ruling elite saying, you need to act a certain way. And the reason you're experiencing depravity in your life, both spiritually and physically, the reason you're unclean, the reason you're a leper, the reason you are a paralytic is because you have done something wrong. And then using the temple system to say, oh, you owe us tribute because you're not a whole person, because you're an epileptic or because you're paralyzed. And offering them no healing and no nourishment so that year after year, time after time, you're coming back to that very system that has really probably put you in the place you're in. You guys see that formula? That's how this message relates to the book of Ecclesiastes. But I want to make a note on the comparison between the blessings here and the blessings we saw in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28 includes those six blessings and six curses. The people to whom Jesus is speaking, the sick, the demoniacs, the epileptics, the paralyzed, they are experiencing, don't miss this, curse. And Jesus comes along and says, no. It's not you who have screwed up. It's not you who have missed the boat. It's, it's those ruling, corrupt religious authorities who have missed it. And he gives them hope based on that message. And, and this is further, I think, um, bolstered by the language. Uh, the language Deuteronomy uses. Deuteronomy uses this word baruch in Hebrew for blessed. And the, the Septuagint's translation, the Greek translation, which is what Matthew is written originally in, uses the word plutain to translate Baruch, blessed. These are religious words. They find their setting in religious circumstances. You go into church and you've probably noticed that, this, we speak what language as Christians? We speak Christianese. Sometimes people who don't, maybe didn't grow up in the church don't understand some of the language we use because it's religious language and it's loaded with knowledge that you need to presuppose what word does Matthew use here, probably translating Jesus' Aramaic word? Does he use plutain? Does he use a religious word? No. He uses makarios, and makarios finds its Hebrew parallel in the word ashrei. And ashrei is happy. Ashrei is fortunate. Ashrei is secular. It is not tied to the baggage of the religious institution of Jesus' day. So what Jesus is essentially, I think, doing here is he's further separating himself from the corrupt religious authorities and using language that supersedes that formula. Our last point this morning, you. What does Jesus give these people? Many of these people are restored to community through their healing. But what about those he does not reach? What about the people he could only maybe speak to, the people who only heard his words? What does he offer them? He offers them a promise. It's a promise that someday all the wrongs will be made right. Someday you, 
because you have accepted God's righteous reign in your life, you will be filled. Jesus essentially tells a group of outcasts they are blessed or better fortunate or happy. Now there's tension in here. We saw tension in the book of Ecclesiastes all over the place. How could you tell someone who is mourning that they are blessed? And and how could you grab hold of that? How could you grab hold of that concept of in a moment of experiencing deep loss, you are blessed. In a moment of experiencing pain, you are blessed. How How do you apply that to your life? How does that reign true in your life? What Jesus does is he not only gives them a promise, but he gives them perspective on their situation. And he furthermore gives them tools to live in that tension. And one of the tools he gives these these people he's speaking to here is he shows them that God understands their plight, shows them how to read scripture the correct way in a way that shows the true heart of God and not a heart that condemns them in their circumstance, but a heart that liberates them. This word that he spoke in Matthew chapter 5 to this community rings true 2,000 years later. It, it spread like fire. There was a lot of aha moments that day. Finally, someone is pulling for us. Finally, someone is showing us that God really is on our side. Perspective may be the most powerful weapon you have against your circumstances. I'll read that again. Perspective may be the most powerful weapon you have against your circumstances. God may not heal you of your disease. God may not restore your relationship with an estranged family member. God may not come through in your timing, in your way. But in some way, he says, you are blessed. And, and the question is, because he's trying to give you perspective through his word on your circumstance right now, the question is whether or not you have grabbed onto that perspective, whether or not you have taken hold of the outlook that God is on your side. And somehow, at some time, even if it is after this world, things will be made right. And because of that promise, you are blessed. Now, there's one thing that I didn't mention, and I've, in a way, misled you. Jesus actually, if you look at it carefully, doesn't speak this message to those outcasts. He speaks it to his disciples. Who, yes, some of them were probably experiencing this. But there's power in that message, in that point. Because what that means, this message would ring out true for those outcasts. But many of you need to be that person, that disciple for people in your own community. Because what it was, was it was God, Jesus, looking at his close circle of influence and saying, I can't do it all by myself. And so he picks 12 people to spread this message. You may, sitting here, need to hear that message that you are blessed in your circumstance and grab hold of the perspective that God will make things right. But some of you are already experiencing blessing. And what you need to think about 
is who you can spread that message to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the time that you've taken throughout history to to orchestrate it and make things come together to encourage us, to bless us. And we just praise you for that. And we praise you for speaking into our lives and showing up. And we pray that this week as we go and just live life, that you would be right there with us and that we would be in tune to you and what you want to do in this world. And that we would be proper representatives of your name. In your name we pray.